This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Joseph Anthony Cress. <laughs> and welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. For this episode of Guest Planning, we are very delighted to be joined by Joe Heschmeyer. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Dig. Okay, so many folks will know you <laughs> from a variety of outlets, uh, things you write, things you say, things you publish. I guess that would be written. Regardless, he moves on, um, <laughs> whether it be from Pints or from Catholic Answers <laughs> or other things besides. For those who don't know you and are not yet turned away from the episode by my long introduction, would you say a word of introduction? Sure. As you said, I'm Joe Heschmar. I'm a staff apologist with Catholic Answers, and I have a weekly podcast slash YouTube channel called Shameless Popery. Boom. Okay. Yeah, so I figured I'd, I'd keep it short. So it is done. <laughs> I recently, I recently spoke at a Thomistic Institute conference. I work for the Thomistic Institute conference. To say that I spoke at the Thomistic Institute conference means I, I like participated in homeschooling. Um, but I was being introduced by one of my confreres, and he's like, "Do you have anything that you want me to say for your introduction?" And I said, "No, just keep it as short as possible." He's like, "I can do that." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I congratulate you. All right. So apropos of shameless popery, you wrote an excellent book called Pope Peter uh, on the theme and you engage mm -hmm. on a variety of levels with the papacy. So like historically, philosophically, theologically, apologetically, touching on a bunch of bases. So I thought that we could take the opportunity in this conversation to address some some tough objections um, mm -hmm. and not necessarily to like come up with new objections, but maybe to think through what are objections which have been lodged against the papacy uh, historically, and then how do we as Catholics respond to them? Not just in the sense like, I want to win the argument, but in the sense that I want to live my contemplative life, my spiritual life, my Christian life uh, well, with freedom, with joy, etc. So um, in, in your surveying of different objections to the papacy, uh, I'm sure you have, you know, excellent ones from the Orthodox kind of churches, excellent ones from Protestant ecclesial communions. Do you have some favorite objections, places where you like to start as good jumping off points for defending the church's teaching? Places to jump off in terms of objections or places to jump off in terms of making the Catholic case? Um, well, I see those are two different questions. I've posed them both. Yeah, so yeah, maybe yeah. choose the one that you prefer as a starting, a starting point. Okay. Um, I think my favorite objection to the papacy is the argument that sure there's a lot of biblical evidence that peter was the first leader of the apostles but how strong is the evidence that it continues after his death because when you when you make that shift especially if you're like a sola scriptura protestant you're putting catholics in an evidentiary bind in a certain way because the vast majority of the new testament is written in a period where peter seems to still be alive and so getting a lot of verses that talk about the post-Petrine papacy, say that three times fast, uh, is, is tricky in the same way that getting verses about the Assumption of Mary is tricky. You're asking for something that's quite late in the apostolic age to be proved in verses that are either going to be prophetic about a future event or are describing the future or describing the event once it's present and past. Uh, and so it's a narrow category of text. So it, of course, almost, almost by definition, the Catholic case for the post-Petrine papacy is weaker than the case for Peter being the first pope. And I hope that makes sense. If you're looking at just the scriptural evidence, because if, when you start saying what happens after Peter, you start moving away from just what do we have in the first century with the Bible to what other documents do we have in the first, second century that, that point to what happens after 66. 
And as just maybe a quick follow-up question to that, I suppose that kind of bridges the gap between scripture and tradition insofar as scripture isn't self-interpreting and also what happens after scripture requires not like different hermeneutical principles, but a development of the hermeneutical principles that we employ when reading sacred scripture. So on answering the objection, you know, where do you typically go from there? Yeah. So in response to that particular one, I actually like to look at John 21. So, you know, the standard place a lot of Catholics want to go is Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is an absolute gold mine. But the problem with Matthew 16 is that it's, it's almost too rich. Uh, that it, and it's, it's rich in a way that's filled with imagery and terminology, and it's contested at kind of every corner. And so, you know, in, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter at the time, known as Simon, you are Peter, Kepha in Aramaic. Uh, and upon this rock, Kepha in Aramaic, I will build my church. And so the first question is, in Greek, why is Petros used and then Petra if the underlying Aramaic is Kepha and Kepha? So you've already got one confusing technical question. And then it's, okay, when he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church, does this mean Peter or the faith of Peter or Peter on behalf of the 12 or on behalf of the entire church? Or does it mean Jesus? Or I, I recently learned the LDS interpretation is that the rock refers to divine revelation. It's, it's none of the standard Catholic or Protestant. And so, so you're already just at the very beginning in this very strange place of, okay, what does it mean to say uh, he's going to build the church upon Peter? And then he says the gates of hell will not overcome. What does that mean? Why does he say the gates or the gates of Hades? Does that mean that the church will never be destroyed? There won't be a great apostasy. Does that mean something else? And then he gives them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives them the binding and loosening authority. But then in Matthew 18, he gives the binding and loosening authority, but not the keys to the entire church. And it's very confusing. <laughs> and so there's something that looks like a really strong bit of evidence for the Catholic case. Certainly, Matthew 16 is a text more um, expected from a Catholic vision of the papacy than it would be from, say, a Baptist vision of, of what ecclesiology ought to look like. You wouldn't expect special powers being given to one man mm -hmm. if something like Baptist ecclesiology was correct, or, or even Presbyterian, or fill in the blank, even Orthodox, frankly. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, it's a complicated and confusing. Uh, you, you can get into a morass very, very quickly, especially if you're not deeply read on the issue. So I like going to John 21 and I like going to John 21 partly because it's sort of virgin territory for a lot of people that they're not used to looking at the passage. So I'll give a, a basic outline. John 20 ends with what appears to be the conclusion of the gospel of John. John says that there are many other things Jesus did, but these are written that you may believe. Great. And you expected to say the end. And then because oh, by the way, and John has already covered the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And then in John 21, he tells us another story of Jesus's post-resurrection appearance. And it's this one about seven disciples being out on the Sea of Galilee. And there's what's the third miraculous catch of fish in the Gospels. And there's, you know, famously 154 fish caught. No one knows why that number. And then they have breakfast with Jesus. And then Jesus takes Peter aside and asks him three times, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he tells him to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. And so there's something really rich going on. And the first thing we should be saying is, what is this chapter even here for? Because generations of critical scholars thought that maybe John 21 was a later edition because it's sort of a surprising chapter to find. Now there's increasingly, even within more critical scholarship, a turn away from that 
because it reads like one through 20. And there's certain themes in the first 20 chapters of John that are completed in John 21. Nevertheless, it is right to see it as an epilogue. And the early Christians read it as an epilogue as well. Just an epilogue written by John and an intentional epilogue, not, not some you know edition written by somebody else later on. And so then the question is, what's it about? Uh, St. Augustine in his tractates on John argues, it basically, that the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John is not just telling the story about the apostles encountering Jesus, that it's really a sign of the mission of the church throughout history. That when you have the seven apostles, this is pointing to the perfect number in Hebrew numerology, the number of completion, it's the Sabbath day, it's eternal rest, especially if you read the epistle of the Hebrews, or to the Hebrews. And so it's, it's the story of the church, this ship on sea towards Jesus who's standing on the eternal shores. And when you read it that way, it, it actually makes the entire chapter make sense in a whole new light. And it makes sense of everything that's included within it. Because you also have things like the prediction of the death of Peter and all of that, where it's just, this is the forward-looking chapter in the Gospel of John. This also harmonizes well with what we know about the other three Gospels. So Mark is the most contentious because we don't know for sure that we have the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, but it ends with some reference to the apostolic mission. In Matthew, this is a lot clearer with the Great Commission. Luke has an entire sequel, not just an epilogue. He's got an entire sequel, the Acts of the Apostles, where he says, okay, Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. Now what? And that now what is the story of the church empowered by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Augustine's reading of John is that he's doing something very similar in John 21, that this epilogue is the now what kind of story. <laughs> and when you read it in that light, it tells us why we need Peter going forward, even, even after the literal Simon Peter will die. Uh, yeah, Joe, so as, as you're laying the foundation for this, I'm going to jump to the entire opposite end of the spectrum. So I want to jump from <laughs> Peter, the foundation of the papacy, to honestly, like the present day. Um, okay. because these kind of conversations of the papacy, the role of the papacy, the importance of the papacy, um, have taken on a totally different light in a very globalized world and globalized culture with mass media, um, social media, all of these things now has taken the papacy and, and um, put it in a really different position now. Um, so as we look at, you know, these foundational arguments for the role of the papacy in the church, um, but its kind of status and position looks quite different uh, in our present age, while still being, and I think we can argue, uh, you know, uh, that we are in an apostolic age. So we're in an apostolic age in a globalized culture, which is very radically different than what we saw with the original Peter and how the, the Pope um, operates in those ways. Um, so I think our contemporary engagement with the papacy looks very different. And I think mm -hmm. we have some kind of very different expectations now of what the papacy should be just because of our societal um, understanding and things like that. One of the things that I have seen, and this is where I would like to see your commentary and your kind of understanding of the history of the church and the papacy. Um, one of the things I've seen is like in the 20th century was really like the century of, of saintly popes, right? You had so many popes that were canonized saints, John the 23rd, John Paul II, Paul VI, and it, the Pope became synonymous with living saint, you know, and I think yeah. we forget that, that uh, kind of tension because for so many, you know, of our, 
our age and even our parents age and even that like every pope they've ever experienced was a saint so i mean what should we be looking for when we see the pope is that an appropriate thing to immediately see the person in white in the vatican as not just being named pope whoever but essentially saint whoever um yeah is that an appropriate attention yeah it so it depends in one way what you mean by the question in one sense it's legitimate for the faithful to say the pope ought to be a saint in the same way Mm -hmm. i can say i ought to be a saint my wife ought to be a saint Our, our pastor ought to be a saint but to just assume based on that that the pope is a saint i think is a little ignorant of church history there's what maybe a a third of the popes are canonized that doesn't mean the other two-thirds didn't go to heaven but it is (laughs) instructive that dante in the divine comedy has no popes that he mentions in heaven and he the only popes that get named explicitly if, if memory serves are the ones in the inferno they're the popes that he thinks are in hell and partly that i think might be dante's uh, personality but nevertheless uh it certainly is not the historical view of christian now, to be sure there, there is a view that that you will see often coming from rome that says mm-hmm. every every pope is a saint or a saint in the making um but that is not the official teaching of the catholic church and it seems to be uh contradicted by plenty of historical evidence of of not so saintly seeming popes we've had some really dark ages in the church when it comes to the papacy and there are times where the pope while still being the pope while still in some sense holding christendom together has not been a moral example in the same way that we might look at you know we can talk up and down about the beauty of the traditional family father and mother but it'd be a mistake from that to say every father and every mother is holy or saintly or or is doing the job that they're called to do by god we want to acknowledge the distinction between the office whether we're talking about pope or father or mother and then the people occupying the office who often Mm -hmm. fall short of the calling they've been entrusted by god as we all do okay so a follow-up question on that is like what is the papacy in a certain sense um i realize that's a global question but uh, right, you, you have different ways to explain how grace is operative in the life of an individual, like sanctifying grace. It makes him holy. It fills him up from mm-hmm. the you know, soles of his shoes to the top of his head. And then you have like actual graces, which kind of get in there and prompt you to do good things or might um, be those types of graces which you welcome before you're justified. And then we have like charismatic graces, like mm-hmm. prophecy or gift of tongues, which traditionally would be taught that they don't require sanctity, they don't require holiness. And then it seems like, you know, uh, when a pope is elected by the College of Cardinals and con- or not consecrated, but when he's elected by the College of Cardinals, that there's something conferred upon him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like what how would you describe like what's going on in his interior life? If you can make, you know, a guess, it's a theological question. I suppose it's probably controverted in the church's history and somewhat obscure. But do you do you want to wade into those waters? Yeah, I mean, I would only say there is a grace of office and you often see this. You, again, I mean, as, as we've just established, not every pope is saintly. Not every pope responds to these graces well. But there is one sense in which, you know, the, the old saying that God doesn't uh, call the equip, he equips the called, that it isn't that these people are just so exemplary in terms of their leadership and holiness and everything else that's really necessary to be a good pope, and then they become pope. It's rather that we sometimes see these remarkable transformations in particular men's lives where they really step up 
once they become Pope in these really remarkable and radical ways that seem to be a manifestation of the working of grace. Now, whether you say that's the grace of office or whether you simply say, in as much as God has called someone to anything vocationally, he always gives them the graces necessary to excel in the area in which he's called them. I, I think there's something either way in that, uh, you know, whether you think of it vocationally or officially, um, we want to make sure it's not an additional sacrament. You know, we're, we're not saying the Pope is a fourth level of holy orders above Bishop, uh, but nevertheless, he is called to something special and there are particular graces tied to the office in particular charisms tied to the office, most obviously infallibility. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at that role, that, that particular grace of, uh, of the office to, to govern well, the grace of infallibility, um, I keep thinking back to the kind of current circumstances of our church being now we are, you know, um, who was it? Uh, Fulton J. Sheen said back in what, whatever the fifties, Christendom is dead, you know, and mm -hmm. you can kind of see the role yeah. in the beauty of the papacy in such a hierarchical society in Christendom, right? Having the, the order, the structure, the hierarchy, it has such a profound um, role and it's not just a figurehead. I mean, it's real. Um, but now that we're not in Christendom and we're in a very apostolic uh, age, this role of the papacy, the the grace given, um, wh where does that fit in now? Wh where what's what's the kind of mission or the role of the papacy in apostolic times from church's history that maybe we can start to start to approach the papacy with a, a deeper reverence and learning from the past ages of saying, okay, this is actually not a super um, strict hierarchy in the sense of we're no longer in Christendom, but this is where we can. Um, lean on the the role of the papacy in our contemporary age yeah i think that's a great question and some of that is the question we're still kind of exploring the answer to because right, right. we are in an unprecedented period as you said you know from christendom to apostolic age but it's not really the apostolic age in a certain sense that it's apostolic in the sense that we're sent on mission but there's mm -hmm. a key distinction between the old evangelization and the new evangelization and john paul ii highlights it the new evangelization is really a re-evangelization. And so you have the danger of people who are almost inoculated against Christianity, meaning they've gotten just enough that they feel like they're experts in it, or they feel like they know what Christianity has to offer and they're not interested. That puts them in a very different category than pagans for whom Christianity was a strange new thing and, and possessed a certain amount of interest just by virtue of being the, the cool and trendy thing. I'm thinking of, uh, Tacitus in his annals, mm -hmm. where he talks about how Rome, the city of Rome, uh, falls into every new superstition and Christianity is the latest one in his view. And th there's something cool and trendy about Christianity in those early days, even while it was dangerous and, and often uh, a death sentence, there was still something really intriguing about it. And now we have to work with the areas in which we've gotten lukewarm and in which the embers have gone cold and it's harder to light a fire where you've got dead ember as opposed to wood that's ready to burn. So we're like charting new courses in this. Now, in terms of the role of the papacy and vis-a-vis -vis Christendom, I think back to what Hilaire Belloc said in the early 20th century, where he said, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. I don't mm -hmm. know hardly anyone who would still hold to that kind of view of just associating Catholicism or, or Christendom more broadly just with Europe. Right now, the major growth in Catholicism is in the global south. 
And it often is a really important corrective to a lukewarmness that has settled into much of at least Northern Europe. Um, and no offense, Father Gregory, I know you're in Switzerland, right? So <laughs> you're, you're right uh, on the border of, if not in the midst of a lot of, I mean, I, I lived in Italy and I, I saw plenty of, of that. And, and I, frankly, we see plenty of it in the US. But this role that now that we've moved away from these traditional uh, historic areas of Christianity, these new areas are often kind of re-evangelizing mm -hmm. the old world, so to speak, the old Christendom. And in that, the Pope isn't having, like you said, the direct hierarchical kind of role as when he's intimately involved in the affairs of Southern Europe. He's instead having more of an aspirational and inspirational role where mm -hmm. he can help morally support those who are on the front lines, often in, in places too far away uh, to be more directly responsive to, to papal leadership. Now, offsetting the thing I just said, you, you have on the one hand, right, the, the growth in Catholicism is further and further away geographically from Rome than, than maybe ever before in history. On the other hand, it's closer than ever before when you have like new media and everything else figured in. And so in that sense, the Pope can have a more direct understanding of what's going on in Nairobi than would have ever been imaginable in even the very yeah. recent past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a more complicated situation, but it, it's in the face of that situation, I think a healthy and sane approach is to mm -hmm. not forget either the important role the Pope plays or the important role the Bishop plays. As the Second Vatican Council points out, the bishops are not just vicars of the Pope. They're not just middle management. They are successors of the apostles <laughs> in their own right. And so often both the laity and frankly, many of the bishops act like their role is to just translate the latest thing coming out of Rome. And, and they're actually called to something more dynamic and inspirational than that, which I think can help bridge that divide between the increasingly global nature of the church. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, just a question, a follow-up question with respect to Pope Francis in particular. I'm thinking of the way that St. Thomas talks about the virtue of prudence. He says, on the one hand, you have renative prudence, which is the prudence of a leader. And then on the other hand, you have political prudence, which is the prudence of the citizenry within the setting of a polity. And so there's a kind of coordination, as it were, between the virtuous life and the virtuous, virtuous life of the one and the virtuous life of the other. So I'm thinking about the grace of office as you describe it. And then I'm thinking about like the corresponding graces of the governed or the corresponding graces of those who pertain to the flock. And the reason for which, you know, it's been 10 years of the Pope Francis papacy. And I think a lot of people, you know, um, this is, you know, no secret. Um, uh, you know, they feel like sad, angry, somewhat confused, somewhat bewildered insofar as there are certain departures from the past two papacies with which they have become accustomed or had become accustomed. Um, and so, especially in the 21st century where we, you know, we react immediately to everything, we react kind of vehemently and vociferously to everything, where we treat all of our relationships kind of like elective political relationships, and we're always kind of, I don't know, we're, we're like jostling or we're angling or we're tinkering or whatever it is. I think that, yeah, there's, there's some graces to be had for trying to, I don't know, cultivate a certain disposition of the governed, a virtuous disposition of the governed vis-a-vis. Pope Francis. So yeah, what would your be your your kind of encouragements or your kind of insights to share in a time where where many might feel somewhat, I don't know, estranged? Yeah, I mean, Thomas Aquinas talks about the twofold respect owed, uh, one in terms of office and two in terms of individual sanctity. And so you owe your bishop a certain amount of respect, you owe him even more respect if he's also really holy. But even if he's not, there's still a baseline level of respect that you owe him. And, and the example I would use here that may be more fundamental or, or more graspable 
that's not a word for ordinary people is, is the experience of the family that your respect for your, your mother and father, your honor of your mother and father that you're called to by the 10 commandments, a is not restricted to, or primarily focused on minor children. One of the gross distortions of the 10 commandments is the way we treat it as just a rule that says, obey your parents, kids. That's not what the 10, I mean, the 10 commandments aren't written primarily for kids. And so that should tell us that the honor we owe to our mother and father is, is something that extends even into adulthood. But whether you're an adult or a child, you've had the experience of saying, here is a person who has been placed in my life in a position to which I owe great respect. And we can talk about the virtue of piety in this regard. Um, but then also, here are some things that hopefully I really look up to and admire in my father and in my mother. And then maybe here are these other areas that I really struggle with. Now, there's a few ways you can react to that. One way is to try to defend everything they ever did and say, no, everything they did must have been for my good. Everything they ever did must have been the right thing. And those mental gymnastics are only going to get you so far because uh, I'll tell you the truth. No, there were times they, they failed you. There were times that they sinned. There were times that they were selfish. There were times they were pursuing their own good at the expense of yours. No matter how good your relationship is with your parents, there are going to be times I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and there are already times that their parents have fallen short, me included, uh, you know, me, me particularly, frankly, where <laughs> it's the, the human fallibility comes into play. So one way would just be to pretend that there are no faults. And I think that is a recipe for a lot of mental anxiety. The second way is to have a really um, unfilial attitude, meaning to have an attitude where you are really disrespectful to your parents. You know, I've, I've heard people who refer to their parents by their Christian name rather than as their mother and father, where there's a, a tremendous amount of alienation. And this is something I think scripture actually warns against. In Luke 15, when you look at the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he has this kind of alienation towards his family. Uh, when he is, first of all, when we encounter him, he's in the field, he's not in the house. And then he refuses, in fact, to come into the house. This is the first sign that he views himself more as a laborer than as a son. And then he demands better wages from his father. He, he says, when this son of yours comes home, you give him the fatted calf and you've never even given me a goat to feast on with my friends. Now, that's an insane critique to have of your father, that he hasn't given you like a quarterly bonus. That's just not a healthy way of, of viewing it. So you'll see the father's response is to say, son, all that I have is yours. But this, your brother has come home. So he's lost his sense of brotherhood. He's lost his sense of sonship. And we can really risk doing this both in the family context and in the broader level in the church context, where we have people who refuse to even say Pope Francis will just say Bergoglio. And that is as big of a red flag mm -hmm. as someone who refuses to call their mom mom and calls her like Susan or whatever. Uh, it, it shows a spiritual disease that has taken a serious root. And so that second way is also a big red flag. So you don't want to have the mental gymnastics of saying everything's okay, everything they did was fine. You don't want to have the, the spiritual rebellion, that unfilial attitude that scripture seems to warn against. Instead, it's okay to just take an attitude to say, these people were placed in my life and I owe them a debt of gratitude and a debt of honor. And I'm grateful to God that I have parents. I'm grateful to God I have a bishop. I'm grateful to God I have a pope. And yeah, there are times every one of those people has failed me, just as there are times I've failed others. And then I move on. And I don't have to obsess about yeah. every jot and tittle and say, 
how, you know, should he have said this? Should he have done that? Because that's not my job. You know, going back to John 21, there are a few important things in that passage. One of them being that Peter's told to mind his own business when he asked what's going to happen to John. And we can easily forget this. We live in an age where we're encouraged to mind other people's business. I always, I give this example. I was reading the newspapers uh, in St. Louis and they were talking about this court case in which the jury had been a hung jury. And they said, did this guy commit murder? You decide. And I was thinking, how in the world am I going to decide on the basis of one article when this jury had like hours and hours of testimony and couldn't figure the case out? And why in the world would it be my job as a random person who's never even heard of this case before this morning to solve this murder trial? Like that is an insane way of understanding our relationship to the world. And so likewise, when we're saying here's what the Pope should do in response to issue X, Y, or Z, maybe you're right. But at what point do you just say, this is not my job. This is not my responsibility. Because spiritually, we're warned against taking on a bunch of loads that aren't ours. In James 3, we're told not many should be teachers because they'll be held to a higher account. That when you put yourself in that position of judging, you're asking for a harsher judgment. Likewise, in Luke 12, 48, we're told to whom much has been given, much will be expected. To whom more is given, more will be expected. So if you start demanding more and more and more and more, you're asking for a harsher judgment when you have really very little clue of the workings of the global church. Again, that doesn't mean your critiques are never valid or true. It just means spiritually, how, why are you investing this level of interest in, in trying to resolve things that aren't your own problem? Do you not have enough on your own plate to, to strive for holiness and to strive for sanctity that you have to try to fix it for somebody else? All right. With that, I think we've actually come to the uh, the end of our time. Uh, but as I'm listening to you, I'm like, I'm getting excited, uh, like a quiet, <laughs> pumped, but you know, more optimistic than I have been at least as recently as 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Perhaps optimism isn't the appropriate word. I I, I was very much impressed Hopefully by hope. the description that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hope's the yeah, word yeah, for sure. But I was very impressed yeah. by the description that G.K. Chesterton gives in Orthodoxy about the optimist and the pessimist and their respective failures. And he describes himself as a kind of cosmic patriot, uh, which I think is his <laughs> way by which to say I'm hopeful, as it were, or I'm yeah. committed to the thing because it's mine and my commitment manifests itself in a yeah. kind of in a kind of hope. So thanks so much for taking the time. Super appreciated. Yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Now, uh, in addition to this book uh, on the papacy, uh, you've written a recent book about the Eucharist. Can you just tell us a word about that as well? Yeah, the title is The Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ's Body <laughs> and Blood are the Key to Everything We Believe. And I know I, I will go for really subtle titles. Uh, but <laughs> So I've got a chapter there basically explaining the Catholic view on the Eucharist. But then what I do for the next seven chapters after that is look at the interplay between what we believe about the Eucharist and what we believe about the covenant and Christianity, uh, mm -hmm. about the Eucharist and the cross and Old Testament sacrifice, about the Eucharist and our understanding of Christ's body and our own body, uh, the Eucharist and worship, the Eucharist and our belief about the resurrection. Like, how does the Eucharist fit into all of these other things? Because I, I would argue that the Eucharist is true for much the same reason C.S. Lewis describes Christianity as true. He says, I believe in it as I believe in the sun, both because I can see it and because I can see everything else by it. And so if we take the idea of the Eucharist as source and summit of the faith seriously, we talk a lot about the Eucharist as the summit, but the source where the Eucharist makes the rest of Christianity make sense is a task I don't see a lot of people kind of explaining. And so this book is trying to show whether you realize it or not, 
what you believe about the Eucharist has a huge role to play about what you believe about your body, Jesus's body, mm -hmm. the true worship, the life of the saints, your spiritual life, everything else. And, and to hopefully tie some of these pieces that seem to be unrelated together in a Eucharistic way. Boom. All right. Well, I look forward to reading it. Uh, <laughs> I've been trying to read a couple of books on the Eucharist recently in anticipation of the revival. So I will add that to the list. It's a short list, which means that the chances of my actually reading your book are decent. <laughs> I understand <laughs> I long how lists. reading lists work. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Once one book goes on and, uh, and then another book goes yeah. on and occasionally one of them gets read. I, I'm guilty of this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I suspect that in purgatory, we'll have time to finish all the books on our shelves. That, <laughs> that sounds yet like it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks as always, listeners, for uh, tuning into this episode of God's Planning. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like the episode, subscribe on YouTube or your podcast app, and leave a five-star review. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, you can follow the link in the description or show notes. And there you will also find links for merchandise on the one hand, and then for retreats on the other hand. So you have your, let's see. Oh, Young Adults Retreat is uh, is available now, I think, uh, as the launching of this episode. It's contemporaneous with the launching of this episode. So excited. I'm excited. You are excited. We're all, all God's children are excited. So you can check that out in the description or show notes and apply at godsplanning.org. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning.